Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Roll up your sleeve while we palpate the pulse of science. I'm Patrick Ruby. On this edition, we visit remote Earth and blast off to the red skies. Is there life on Mars? Martin Vaccini is exploring the latest Martian landing. This time, it's all about water, life, and seasonal changes. On May 25, 2008, the Mars Phoenix lander successfully touched down in the frigid Martian Arctic. It's the sixth successful Mars lander and the first of NASA's new scout missions. Phoenix will spend 90 souls, or Mars days, performing experiments to discover the history of water on Mars, determine whether Mars can support life, and find out how the Martian climate is affected by polar dynamics. Researchers are hoping it can survive into the Martian winter to witness the formation of surface ice. They estimate up to three feet of carbon dioxide ice could form. To accomplish these goals, Phoenix has been equipped with some of the most advanced technology ever sent to Mars. Phoenix left Earth on August 4, 2007 aboard a Delta II rocket. After a 680 million kilometer journey, the lander entered the atmosphere at, near, at nearly 21,000 kilometers per hour. Deploying its parachute and using its thrusters, it was able to slow its speed to 8 kilometers an hour for landing. Three of Mars' orbiting satellites observed Phoenix entering the atmosphere, and the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter's high-resolution imaging camera was able to take stunning photos of Phoenix, suspended from its parachute, 20 kilometers in front of a 10-kilometer-wide impact crater. This was the first time that one spacecraft has ever photographed another while landing on a planet. Even though the parachute deployed seven seconds later than expected, the lander was still able to touch down in the desired location. It also reoriented itself just before landing so that its solar panels would get the most energy from the sun. Fifteen minutes after landing, Phoenix deployed those solar panels and not long after beamed its first photos to an orbiting satellite that relayed them to Earth. The Phoenix's permanent home is called the Green Valley because it contains the highest concentration of water ice on Mars outside of the poles. Those first photos revealed a mostly flat landscape, covered in polygon shapes that stretched to the horizon. The shapes, which are about 5 meters across and 10 centimeters high, were first seen from orbit and are the reason scientists think there is so much water in the area. On Earth, similar shapes form in the permafrost when the temperature drops, causing ice to contract. Then, when the ice heats up and expands, it buckles the ground upwards, forming the raised, multi-sided shapes. Therefore, this is the perfect place to search for water ice just below the surface of Mars. The Phoenix lander is equipped with numerous scientific devices. It has a 2.35 meter robotic arm designed to dig half a meter below the surface. The arm is equipped with a camera that can take full color pictures of the samples in the scoop and examine the area that was just excavated. The project managers plan to designate the polygon that they sample first, the first national park of Mars. The surface stereo imager is the primary camera for the spacecraft and is an upgrade to the imagers used in the Mars Pathfinder 
and polar lander missions. The thermal and evolved gas analyzer will heat eight samples of Martian soil and determine its contents using a mass spectrometer. Levels of water vapor and carbon dioxide gas will be determined, along with minerals that may have formed in warmer, wetter past climates. It will also be able to find any organic volatiles down to one part per billion. The Microscopy, Electrochemistry, and Conductivity Analyzer is an instrument package consisting of a wet chemistry lab, optical and atomic force microscopes, and a thermal and electrical conductivity probe. The robotic arm will scoop up soil, put it in one of the four wet chemistry lab cells where water will be added, and while stirring, an array of electrochemical sensors will measure a dozen dissolvable ions such as sodium, magnesium, calcium, and sulfate in the water. This will provide information on the biological compatibility of the soil, both for possible Martian microbes and for the possible future Earth visitors. Sensors will also measure the pH and conductivity of the soil water mixture, telling if the wet soil is super acidic or alkaline and salty, or full of oxidants that can destroy life. Finally, courtesy of the Canadian Space Agency, a meteorological station will record daily weather. This includes wind, pressure, and temperature readings. Using LIDAR, it will also determine the vertical distribution of dust, ice, fog, and clouds in the local atmosphere. Currently, the weather on Mars is sunny, with highs of minus 30 degrees Celsius and lows of minus 80 degrees Celsius. Any future visitors to the site will be able to retrieve a DVD containing Visions of Mars, a collection of literature and art about the Red Planet, including H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles, and Kim Stanley Robinson's Green Mars. Also included are personal messages from Carl Sagan and Arthur C. Clarke, and 250,000 names submitted from the internet. At a cost of $325 million, the Phoenix lander's success should ensure support for future missions to Mars that will pave the way for a manned or womaned mission and help erase the memory of the failed Mars polar lander mission. Thanks, Martin. That's one small step for Phoenix and one leap closer to colonization. The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one. But still, they come. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. The XO is a laptop specially designed for children aged 6 to 12. Professor Barry Verco of the One Laptop Per Child Foundation and the MIT Media Lab gave a talk about the project at the Sydney Mechanics School of the Arts. Ian Wolfe caught up with him after the lecture. In the background, you can hear the delighted sound of people playing with the EXO laptops on display in the room next door. The whole idea here is to have school systems or even governments uh, willing to step in and take a big step in the education of their children. It's really for governments who honestly do believe that the future of their country lies in educating their children. Now this is what a lot of, lot of governments may pay lip service to, but they may not do it. Right. For instance, Nigeria has a lot of oil money, but very little of that gets to the poorer parts of the country and to the children. So the idea here is to perhaps embarrass the governments or to induce the governments or whatever the term would be 
to make a real investment in the future of their country through their children. And in this case, the One Laptop Per Child Foundation has come to Australia and we have children in developing world conditions in the outback in remote areas. How is this project going to help them? Well, the focus is, has always been and continue, will continue to be on the children living in remote areas, children from very poor circumstances, and children who are otherwise disadvantaged. And in fact, it's those people in the world that we have focused on. The problem with Australia and the Pacific is it hasn't received very much attention now because there's no genocide and things like that going on. So right. the things that are really on the OLPC radar are places like Rwanda. And uh, so we're very active in these countries where the children are really suffering and really are in need of, of help and, and giving given some sense of, of a better future. So this is a very different sort of thing. This is not where you get a laptop and you stick a, a child alone in a room with this to, to just play with the no, computer. No. This is more for collaboration and um, sharing? Yes, well it certainly has that capacity to um, have children interact with each other um, just as they might well do um, be doing in the playground or classrooms or whatever. But normally technology has had the capacity to keep people apart. Uh, witness even mobile phones these days. People used to talk to each other on buses and trains. Now they don't. As soon as they get aboard a bus, the first thing they do is flip open their, their uh, phone and they don't interact with anybody around them. Right. What I'd like to see happen in that context, perhaps, is that uh, there would be software, something like on the laptops, um, that could be, in fact, my software will run on, on cell phones too. Um, the machine? It, yes, but um, something like that so that when you, the laptop or when your phone discovers that it's near another phone, it can send a little signal, hey, do you want to play a little duet or something, and you might get involved in some interactive music performance that not just for you, but involves you in some other nearby uh, phone that's running the similar software. So in other words, <clears throat> technology has the capacity to bring us together. So far, it, it hasn't really done that. It's that is pretty remarkable that those little exo laptops, you see a laptop across the other side of the, the room or across the table, mm -hmm. and your laptop can talk to the other child's yeah. laptop. Yes. And so, as you're saying, the phone would be able to talk to the other phones around that, That's you. what should happen. Yes, phones don't do that yet. Phones don't do that, mm. and, and adult laptops don't do that. No. So could we get the software from your foundation and adapt it to use for... Oh, it's about, well, the software is free. It's free and open free. source, so you can do whatever you like with it. Would it work on the hardware that's currently on laptops and phones? doesn't need any special you probably would have to regular Wi-Fi um, with some special protocols you'd have to do well it has to have a sort of 802.11s communication channels these um, laptops have three ports actually so they're mm. actually going out through to three you know one of three different ports but as soon as you open a laptop for instance there are four laptops mm -hmm. in the, at this meeting and if you look at the front part of any of those the home page you'll see the other three laptops are right. vis visible on the front screen. So, And these may not be in the same room. These may be children who are in a village and they're 
grass huts or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and they'll be able to communicate and say, hey, there's someone who's actually on his machine right now. And right. start a communication going, but for which they don't need telephones, they don't need long-distance communication, connect charges. These things will just uh, run sort of under the radar of normal connection. Uh, no bills. No bills, no. No bills, no debt. Should not be, no. Not for kids to talk to each other. Sounds very good. Well, the computer, the interface has been designed to be very icon-oriented because uh, we expect children, of course, in many countries, even at the age of six or eight, you know, don't have any reading capacity at all. So you can't put it necessarily that they have to master words or recognize anything more than just perhaps symbols. Right. So this is a very symbol-oriented uh, icon-oriented interface and instead of being the typical structure you have in a window system or most community system where there's a tree structure of directories or something which takes a little bit of mental agility to understand and, and mm-hmm. move around move up the branches of a tree and come down another branch it's just a very different structure here that things are organized according to how recently you were doing this, so your journal, your, your, the organization is a journal, it shows you you were here five minutes ago, you were here 15 minutes ago, you were here yesterday, right. and you were here last week, so you just go through this journal and you sort of think back, now when was I working on that? And you can and retrace your steps. Yes. It's just a very different way of thinking about how to relate your experiences one to the other it's a time sequence thing it's not it's not a tree structure where you have to traverse uh, some particular route to find where you were just 10 minutes ago right it's not like that at all time instead of space yes 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 so what's the minimum quantity to order if a school or government is interested in getting a project started well, I should say that the way the price is going to come down is through massive mass production. And we can only, if we go to the factory, the production units with orders of 10,000 or 50,000 or something, then the price starts to come down. Mm. And uh, there haven't been such big orders. that Previously it was about 5,000 as the minimum order. Right. And I think it's probably going to go up to 10 shortly. And so that what would need to happen is that communities or school systems or whatever would need to band together and say, okay, let's place an order for 10,000 units mm-hmm. and then we'll find a way then, and, and uh, 10,000 units plus whatever peripherals are needed if they're solar, solar panels or a spare battery or whatever. Or a server or something. Yes. And then we'll decide uh, you know, what the individual charge should be so that then it becomes a small little local distribution center but you can deal directly with the factory for something right. of that size you see and i believe the one laptop per child project got onto the prime minister recently future summit which was mm. earlier this week i was right. on that yes i was one of the main speakers in the education stream for the future summit so does it and look like the federal government might fund some of this for australian children I hope they do. I hope they do it in the order that they start with the indigenous, remote, poorest parts of the nation. The children who need it the most. Yes, that's where you have to start. 
and that's what our PC, what that's what the laptop is designed for. If you bring it to a child living in a home where there is already four computers, so all the parents have one, and a couple of children, the brothers and sisters have one each, and these are big, expensive computers that have got a lot of features. The child is going to feel that this computer doesn't measure up. Now, the child won't understand the difference in price. This mm. one is about $188, and when you're comparing that with an $1,800 laptop, then uh, there's quite a difference. Uh, there should be a difference in expectations, but of course the child will see it as yet another computer and say, "Well, well, this doesn't. This is not as good as the dad's computer." So, what is this? A toy for kids? I don't want toys. Yeah. But I think to take these machines into places where there is no technology, where this is the best thing they've ever seen, mm. is where you'll get the excitement and participation of the children. That's when the learning will start. A lot of people look at the project and say, oh, look, you're just giving computers to poor children. What, what, what are they going to do with them? And I get a sense and the answer is they'll do everything. Yeah, yeah I think you've answered your own question there. <laughs> I'm, I never thought of the question of, you know, what on earth will they do with them? We've built so many fun things into this device that I can't imagine the children ever getting tired. That was Ian Wolfe talking with Professor Barry Verco from MIT Media Lab and the One Laptop Per Child Foundation. Few men even consider the possibility of life on other planets. And yet, across the gulf of space, minds immeasurably superior to ours regarded this Earth with envious eyes. And slowly and surely, they drew their plans against us. So it's taken nine months for the Phoenix to get to Mars, and we're all very excited about it touching down to find out new and exciting stuff about water, life, and the different seasons. Do we think that it's a good use of money to actually go into space and continue the exploration of Mars? Is there going to be any future benefit? Yeah, 300 some odd million dollars certainly is a high price to pay. But when you consider the fact that these new scout missions have been designed to be cheaper and more innovative, it's certainly bodes well in their favor. And I think it is NASA's long-term goal to have a manned mission to Mars, and they need these preliminary missions to determine suitability. So it's definitely a, a valid issue, but NASA has a gigantic budget, and they also spend exorbitant amounts of money on other um, space issues like um, fixing the Hubble and launching telescopes, and more, most importantly, the International Space Station. International Space Station, what has it achieved so far? cooperation between countries in space. I suppose it's a big uh, diplomatic sign, isn't it? If you're getting a mixture of different countries coming together and working on something in common, which uh, looking at the history of water on Mars and looking at the potential for for water perhaps still being there and, and the sustainability of life, is that more out of intellectual curiosity or are we actually going to use that perhaps for our own colonisation of Mars at some point? Or is that too far down the track to think about? I think it definitely goes to intellectual curiosity. And I think that's the reason they included so many works of fiction and art on the, uh, on the satellite. So we've been fascinated with Mars for hundreds of years, ever since we've seen it, knew it was there. And included in the, in the DVD is the scientist who thought that there were canals on Mars full of water from a few, about 100 years ago. 
So it's definitely intellectual curiosity and just scientific progress, really. Have, um, have either of you guys seen The War of the Worlds? I'm not talking about the new one with Tom Cruise, because I saw that, and I have to say, personally, I sort of... I like the older one, the one from the 1950s. 1950s one was pretty good. Really, oh, yeah. 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 With, with the special effects that were really, you know, cardboard cutout stuff that you... And the, the massive ships were those big eyes on stalks coming out of them scanning and for those helpless earthlings and then there's the rock opera the rock I'm, opera they've done a I've rock opera of one. war of the worlds oh yes. you're kidding it was a rock opera in the 80s and it's out on cd and it was then brought up as a whole stage musical recently fantastic but the question is okay so we're fascinated by space and it's been in the popular culture it's been in the movies it's been in the music it's been on tv but I think a lot of people aren't sure whether it's justified when we've got other expenses on Earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's a cost-benefit thing. A few hundred million dollars to make it to Mars and test the soil for ancient microbes compared to what it could possibly reveal about life in the universe if we were to find life on Mars and life on Earth. Did life come to Mars from Earth or did life come from Mars to Earth? And if it was to find life on Earth, I think that would be the biggest single scientific discovery in the history of science. So I, I personally believe it is worth it. But um, I, I like the way that they're, they've gone about changing their, um, their methods and like, scaling them down in terms of the cost and trying to find more innovative ways to get there and use their money more wisely. Because, I mean, they, they're certainly aware that people have these beliefs and arguments as well. The thing is the search for abstract knowledge always turns out to be profitable it always applies to earth we'd never find anything that's useless there is no useless knowledge i agree with that too i mean i'm thinking of it outside of the realm of um the mars space missions and and general astronomy Um, in terms of medical research or in terms of just basic scientific lab research or research here on earth I'm a firm believer that it's very hard to put a dollar sign or a value sign on blue sky research, which is the type of research where you're just gaining knowledge for knowledge's sake. I mean, when you try to economically rationalize stuff, you're actually, you're losing a little bit on what you're learning because you're having to rationalize it to see if you're going to get a return on your dollar. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find when you do that in the field of science, it's something that is very difficult to put in an economic framework mm-hmm. in that way, a strict economic You can't framework. always predict. It's, it's unpredictable. That's exactly. why you go out yeah. to, to, to explore. You mm-hmm. don't know what you're going to find. Exactly. And it's sort of, I suppose it's part of the old romantic idea of the scientists going out there to acquire knowledge for knowledge's sake. Yeah, and this is the same debate they had over the Hubble Space Telescope when they launched it and forgot to convert their metric measurements and then the, the mirrors didn't line up, so they had to fund another vastly expensive mission up there to fix the mirror. The same arguments were had then, like, is it worth it? Should we be doing this? But today, you won't really hear those arguments anymore just because of the vast amount of information they've gained using the Hubble, helping us understand the early universe. Basically, robot space probes and satellites and space technology generally has paid for itself lots of times over. Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton has announced that if she becomes president, she's only interested in a robot space program. She doesn't see any interest in manned or woman teams in the future. Mm-hmm. So manned spaceflight, should we send people or should we only send robots? I don't really see 
what we would gain by having a person there other than the fact that there would be a person's footprint on the soil of Mars. I think it's more of a, an ego thing, whereas we could accomplish many of the experiments we aim to set out with just with robots. But in terms of like the longer term, more exotic ideas about Mars, like terraforming it for our future use, I think we're a long way away from that. And the dollar signs on that project would be astronomical. We are a long way from that. But at, this, at the same time, if we ever considered a point where we'd like to terraform Mars and we'd like people to colonize it, you would need at some point to get a manned space shuttle up there reasonably earlier on to either confirm what the space probes I've been telling you, or to get a human perspective on what it's like. Mm. Would it be livable? Humans are just much more flexible and innovative than any robot we can now build. Any of these places are so far away that it takes minutes to hours to days for our instructions to the robots to get to them. So they have to act on their own most of the time. And as good as our computers are, they still can't think of things for themselves. So if something new comes up, they can't deal with it. They will just fall off the edge of the cliff before we can tell them, stop! There's nothing as good as having someone on the spot. So I think there may be a place for humans in the future. And of course, there's so much we can learn from solving the problem of keeping people alive in space. But imagine the risks and consequences of sending a manned mission to Mars and having it disappear while landing. I think that would virtually end the space exploration program. It's a horrible thought. It yeah. probably would. But then again, if you never sent anyone up there, you'd never know. Maybe the antenna... What's that flare? You see it? A green flare coming from Mars. Kind of a green mist behind it. It's getting closer. You see it, Bermuda? Come in, Bermuda. Houston, come in. What's going on? Tracking station 43, Canberra. Come in, Canberra. Tracking station 63. Can you hear me, Madrid? Can anybody hear me? Come in. Come in. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or beautiful praise, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Martin Ficini and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Patrick Ruby. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion.